Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that by means of your word, by the word that you spoke to Isaac, by the word that you spoke to the Lord Jesus and through the Lord Jesus, by the word that you spoke from the mouth of the Apostle Paul through what he wrote and the others, Lord, we pray that you would fill the earth with your glory. We pray that you would cause us to live now in response to your word in a way that advances that cause. Lord, we pray that you would make us people who believe that those who trust the Lord, those who trust you are safe. We pray that you would capture our imagination with this glorious story that is told to us in the scriptures. And Lord, fill our hearts with longing for the day when Christ will come, when every tear will be wiped away, when the dead will be raised, when all will be made new. And Lord, we ask that that you would help us to live through the difficulties that we face here, through the enmity that we face from the seed of the serpent. We pray that you would make us faithful, make us truth-tellers, make us courageous men and women, Lord, who live for Christ. And we pray that you would cause the gospel to advance. We pray that people would be saved, that, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in the seed of Abraham the Lord Jesus. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 26. And we'll look together at this this really wonderful chapter of Scripture. In this chapter, we, in a way, we don't see anything new happen. Um, What I mean there is is what's communicated by means of the title of the sermon, Isaac in the Footsteps of His Father. It's almost as though everything that happens in Genesis 26 has already happened in Genesis 12 through 22 in the life of Abraham. And as I was thinking about why this would be the case, why Moses would write the story this way, uh, I sort of stepped back from what we have here. And, and just, you know, if, if, you, if you step back and reflect, you see that Isaac really doesn't get a whole lot of what we might call narrative attention. He doesn't get a lot of space in the story, especially if you compare him with Abraham. We got the story of Abraham in chapters 12 through 22, and then Sarah dies in 23, and Abraham dies in 25. And then right there um, in chapter 25, you get Jacob born, and the story of Jacob, you get Isaac in 26, and then Jacob, his story really continues through chapter 36, And then it's Joseph, chapters 37 through 50. So in a way, Isaac just gets one chapter. And uh, so why would it be this way? Well, when you look at the contents of of chapter 26, one of the things that that you sort of see is Abraham's life was a lot like Isaac's life. Isaac's life was a lot like Abraham's life. And so there's a a sense in which what, what Moses has done here is he has retold the story in a way that evokes the whole of Abraham's life. And and one of the points that comes across is this. The the big things are here. 
the big things in, in Isaac's life are, number one, the blessing of Abraham that was passed to him. And that's what we'll see in verses 1 through 5. And then, and then what happens next after that, unfortunately, is Isaac repeats some of the same sins that his father committed. So you remember in, after, after Abraham was blessed at the beginning of chapter 12 and called by God, the very next thing that happens in, in Genesis 12.10 is there's a famine in the land. Well, look at 26.1. Now, there was a famine in the land. And in response to that famine, Abraham takes his family down into Egypt. Well, here in Genesis 26, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said to him in verse 2, Do not go down to Egypt. And then what Abraham does when he gets down to Egypt is he passes Sarah off as his sister. And in this account, starting in verse 6, Isaac passes Rebekah, his wife, off as his sister. And, it, and then the same thing happens where back in Genesis 12, which was also repeated in Genesis 20, Abraham did that sister fib thing twice. Um, and, and, and the same thing happens where the pagan king, he realizes what's going on, and he says to the patriarch, why, what have you done to us? Why are you doing this to us? And, and, and the unrighteous pagan is rebuking the sin of this patriarch. And then just as in Abraham's life, uh, uh, the wife is delivered, chapter 12, chapter 20, now same thing in chapter 26. And then in the same way that Abraham had conflict with Philistines in the land about wells and land and this sort of thing, that happens in Isaac's life also. So there are three big sections in this chapter. Verses 1 through 5 is going to represent to us the blessing of Abraham and Isaac's life. And then in, in verses 6 through 11, Isaac's going to do the same sister fib thing that Abraham did. And then in, chapters, in chapter 26, verses 12 through 33, uh, Abraham, I'm sorry, Isaac is going to have strife with the Philistines in the same way that Abraham did. And each one of these sections has lessons for us. So let's jump in and look with me, if you would, at Genesis chapter 26, and let's start in verses 1 through 5 here. And um, uh, what I want to do is ask that the, the slide that I've got for you be put up on the screen here. And, and I, I, as we look at this, you'll see the way that Isaac's life is re recapitulating the blessing of Abraham, particularly from chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and 22, 15 through 19. Now, that in itself is significant because Abraham's life starts in 12, 1 through 3, the passage that Amos read earlier, with God calling him and promising him these things. And then you know the story of his life. At the end of his life, he, he, or at the end of the story that we get about him in chapter 22, he offers up Isaac... And all those blessings from 12, 1 through 3 are repeated in 22, 15 through 19. And it's those two passages that are quoted here in 26, 1 through 5. So this really makes the point that this passage, 26, 1 through 5, is like summarizing Abraham's life. Look with me at Genesis 26, 1. Now there was a famine in the land. And again, this is, this is the exact same statement that, that we, we had in 12, 2. There was a famine in the land. And then it's as though Moses wants to be sure that we think about that earlier famine here in 26.1, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And whereas Abraham went to Egypt, here Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, which 
This is another point of contact with Abraham's life because in chapter 20, when Abraham does the sister fib that time, guess who he's interacting with? He's interacting with Abimelech, who is king in Gerar. Um, I don't know if it's the same guy or if Abimelech is like a title that the Philistine kings in Gerar take, but this guy has the same name and he's reigning over the same place. Maybe it's the very same guy. We don't know. And then we read on in verse 2. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Some people see here a critique of Abraham having gone into Egypt. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think on this occasion, the Lord is just telling Isaac, don't, I don't want you to go down to Egypt like your father did. And then he continues, he tells him there in verse 2, Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. And then he, then he tells him in verse 3, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. Now let's just pause and reflect on this for just a moment. This is what we need. We need God to be with us. This is what man lost when Adam was driven out of the garden. When man and woman sinned and were driven out of the garden, they lost direct, direct access to the presence of God And this is what God is promising to Isaac. He's telling him, I will be with you. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I think that when we read something like this, we should think, well, this is going to make Isaac invincible, isn't it? This is going to guarantee Isaac's safety, isn't it? The Lord is telling him, live here and I will be with you. And I'm thinking, I think we should think, we should hear this, and we should think, well, if God is for me, if God is with me, who can be against me? You know, I think Isaac, if he hears this from the Lord, there should be a little bit of, okay, bring it, Philistines. Try your worst. See if you can take Rebecca. Go ahead and try. God is with me. Okay, so this is setting up the passage that we're going to see next, the passage after this. So the Lord says to him, Sojourn in this land, verse 3, and I will be with you and will bless you. And you can see how on the screen, uh, Abraham's name is mentioned in verse 1, and then you get a reference to land, and then you get a reference to blessing at the beginning of verse 3, and now we get seed at the end of verse 3. So what we've got is we've got Abraham mentioned, and then the promises made to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. And let's just reflect on those promises for just a moment. What is it that God promises to Abraham when he promises him land? Well, you remember in Genesis 3.17, God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. And a couple of verses before that, in Genesis 3.15, the Lord had said to uh, the serpent, he said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And so after sin... The man and the woman, they live in a cursed land that is filled with people at enmity with them. And so when God promises land to Abraham, implicitly what he's, and and he promises blessing for all the nations, what he's saying is, I'm going to make you dwell in safety. And I'm going to restore blessing to the land, which is articulated in the word blessing. But there's, there's more here in that word that we'll consider in just a moment. I want to suggest to you that the promise of land that starts in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that's reiterated here in Genesis 26, 
That promise is going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. So in that way, the promise of land to Abraham is a promise that's about the salvation of the whole world. That's what it's about. What is it when he promises him seed? Well, if you remember, I think we should, we should bear in mind the threat in Genesis 2.17. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But then, in the word of judgment to the serpent, the Lord says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed serpent and her seed. And he will bruise your head. So, at the most fundamental level, this is a promise that their children are not going to die, that death is not going to end their life right then and there on that day. It's a promise of life. It's a promise that, that their children are going to live. So again, this promise is going to find fulfillment when Jesus comes, the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head and who opens the way of salvation. So the promise of seed is, is about the salvation of the whole world. And then blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. I've already alluded to uh, some of this. This is the, the removal of the curse, the rollback of the curse, but it's also about what we just saw in that previous verse there when the Lord says in verse 3, sojourn in this land and I will be with you. Where God dwells, you have the clean realm of life. That's what Eden is about. Eden is about a pure place a clean realm where God is there, there's nothing defiling, there's nothing dead. There's no transgression, there's no harm. It is altogether pure and alive with all of God's blessing. So I think that's what blessing is ultimately about. Blessing is ultimately about I am with you and I'm going to cause life. I'm going to cause flourishing. That's what the Lord is saying to Isaac here. He's saying to him, I'm going to give you the blessing of Abraham, verse 1. Namely, land, seed, and blessing. And then look at these words here in the middle of verse 3, where he says, For to you and to your offspring, their seed again, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to your father, to Abraham, your father. I will establish the oath. Do you remember in Genesis 22? Genesis 22 that, that Amos just read. Verse 16, the Lord said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And now, here in the middle of this passage, as the Lord reaffirms the blessing of Abraham to Isaac, the Lord is saying, I'm going to keep that oath. And, and just, just to refresh ourselves on what an oath is. An, when you swear an oath, what you're saying is something like, you, you've, you've like cut these animals in half, Genesis 15, and you've separated the pieces, and then the smoking fire pot and the flame, which represents the presence of God, passes between the pieces. And in essence, what he's saying is, may what has been done to these animals be done to me if I don't keep my word, if I don't keep this covenant. That's the oath that he's taking. That's what he has sworn. And so what he's saying now is, I gave my word, I'll keep my word. You can count on it. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. I will give to your offspring, I will give all these lands, which is Genesis 12, 7, isn't it? That's what we saw in Genesis 12, 7. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. 
So what the Lord is saying right here at the center of this passage, I think this passage is so gloriously, beautifully structured, where he's got Abraham in verse verse 1, and then land, seed, and blessing, and then oath to Abraham right at the center of everything. And now it's going to walk back out and say land, seed, and blessing again before it names Abraham again. So, So there's literary beauty and artistry here, but more important, there's the word of promise. The word of promise that is ultimately about the salvation of the whole world. The Lord says in verse 4, I will multiply your offspring. There's offspring again. And multiplication of the offspring. This reaches all the way back to Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. Death is not going to reign in God's world. Life is going to happen. Life of image bearers, those who reflect God's glory. This is what's going to fill the, the, the world with the glory of God. The, those, who, those who bear the image and likeness of God, those who live out his character in the world, they're going to be fruitful and multiply. He says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Well, we've seen that before, haven't we? That's, that's not only Genesis 15. Go outside and look to the stars and number them if you're able to number them. It's also Genesis twenty-two seventeen. I mean, the Lord is really quoting himself here. Moses is presenting the Lord quoting himself. Genesis 22, 7, 17. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Genesis 26, verse 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And what I'm telling you is, Moses is intentionally doing this to call to your mind, Genesis 12, Genesis 22, now in the story of Isaac. As though... Everything that God promised to Abraham is now being passed to Isaac. And then he tells him in the middle, going on in verse 4 there, he says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. So there's land again. And and so if you're thinking to yourself, why does he keep saying land, seed, and blessing? Well, there's artistic construction here, and that's what's driving. And he put oath to Abraham right in the middle. That's why he's repeating himself. He's, he's, He's reinforcing the point. Land, seed, and blessing, salvation of the whole world. And then look at the last phrase of verse 4. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There there are two uh, parts of this. Um, In your seed, and then all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we get different uh, parts of that in different places, but the whole phrase is in 22.18. We just saw 22.17 quoted. Listen to 22.18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So again, it's a quotation in Genesis 26.4 of the statements in Genesis 22.17 and 18. And then the last last word there, verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice. Well, listen to 22.18 at the end. Because you have obeyed my voice. And, and so, because Abraham heard the call of God, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. And not just that, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Because Abraham obeyed the voice of God, because he believed, these promises are now being passed on to Isaac. Because obey, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That language, you, you see a lot of that language in Deuteronomy 11.1 1, describing the whole Torah of Moses. Well, the Torah of Moses haven't, hasn't even been given yet. 
statutes and laws. They haven't been to Mount Sinai yet. That's forward. You've got to fast forward in the story to get to Mount Sinai and get the statutes and the laws and the commandments. So what's going on here? Well, I think Moses wants you to know how you, how you get to be somebody who is regarded by God, considered by God as having kept his commandments and statutes and laws. And the, the, uh, the recipe for that is Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith was reckoned as righteousness. Yes, he heard the voice of God, and because he believed, he did what God said. And that's what's being stated here. Now, we should think about how this applies to us. How does the blessing of Abraham being artistically, beautifully reiterated to Isaac, how does that work itself out in our lives? You don't have to turn there, but if, if you have a copy of the Bible and you can flip through, look over at Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. You can, if you don't want to turn there, you can just write this reference down. And I'm actually going to start reading in verse 13, but what I want is in verse 14. Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on, the tree, on a tree. Verse 14, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you are in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham is your blessing. If you are in Christ Jesus, God is with you. Look at the last words of verse 14. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We, we've, we've gone through Romans in this church. We've seen how in Romans 8, Paul goes on and on about how if anyone is in Christ, then the spirit of, of Christ dwells in them. God is with you. The blessing of Abraham is yours. The promise about the salvation of the world, that's your promise. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham is your blessing. If you are in Christ, and what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it means that he's your Lord. He's your Savior. You've publicly identified with him in baptism. If that's true about you, the blessing of Abraham is yours. Genesis 26, through 1 through 5, those are your words. You can claim those words. And, and this business about all these lands, Paul speaks in his letters to the Corinthians about how all things are yours. This is, I mean, you know, don't, don't take me wrong here. This is not best, best life now. This is not prosperity gospel. But this is your world. This is your world. Your father owns it. All these things are yours. You understand what I'm saying, right? <laughs> Don't misunderstand me. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, land, seed, blessing. Paul speaks in Colossians 1 about how the, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. That's the seed. That's the, the growth of the, the offspring. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So number one... If you're in Christ, the blessing of Abraham is yours. Now, 
what we're going to see in the outworking of this. So this sort of anticip- this next application, it, it sort of anticipates what happens in the next two sections of this passage. Because of the blessing to Abraham, nothing that the Philistines can do to Isaac is going to harm him. They can't take his wife. They can't take his land. They can't stop up his wells. They cannot stop God from blessing him. And, and I would say to you, from Romans 8, 28... All things must work for your good. I know, it's, I know it's not always easy to see that, believe that, but it's true. If you're in Christ, the blessing of Abraham is yours, and all things must work for your good. And I want to just read to you a bit from Calvin's Institutes on God's providence and the way that God's promises work with his providence. Calvin writes, and as, you, as I read this, you should just claim everything that he says here is yours because of Romans 8.28 and Galatians 3.14, and really we could say the whole Bible. There are very many and very clear promises that testify that God's singular providence watches over the welfare of believers. And here he quotes Psalm 55.22, Cast your care upon the Lord, and he will nourish you and will never permit the righteous man to flounder. And then he quotes 1 Peter 5, 7, which quotes that text. For he takes care of us. Cast your care, for he cares for you. For he takes care of us. Psalm 91, 1. He who dwells in in the shadow of the Most High will abide in the protection of the God of heaven. Zechariah 2, verse 8. He who touches you touches the pupil of mine eye. Genesis 15, 1 a text that we'll see alluded to later in this passage. I will be your shield. Jeremiah 1 verse 18. I will make you a bronze wall. Isaiah 49, 25. I will contend with those who contend with you. Isaiah 49, 15. Even though a mother may forget her children, yet I will not forget you. Indeed, the principal purpose, Calvin writes, of biblical history is to teach that the Lord watches over the ways of the saints with such great diligence that they do not even stumble over a stone, referring to Psalm 91, verse 12. If the Lord is for us, who can be against us? And then also, look at those words in verse 4. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You know where this blossoms? This blossoms into the words, go to all nations and make disciples. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in Christ Jesus. And so this blessing of Abraham, this assurance that all things are working for our good and that God is with us and for us, this is what enables believers to go to all nations. Whatever the cost, whatever the difficulties, whatever the dangers... The Bible says that Christ has purchased people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. That means that Jesus has people there that that we will go proclaim the message to. And the ones who belong to Jesus are going to believe the message. And, you know, as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about the way that Isaac, he's he's just one guy with two kids, Jacob and Esau. Meanwhile, 
Ishmael already has 12 princes that are his children, and Nahor, there are 12 names in his genealogy back in Genesis 22. So it's like the, the world is already experiencing these blessings of God. And Isaac, all he is is this, this one little family with these two kids. And this week I heard uh, Dr. Moeller talking with Michael Haken. Maybe some of you caught that interview that was on the, on the chapel that they released on Wednesday. And they were talking about William Carey in India. And, and they spoke of the way that it was eight years in India before William Carey saw his first convert. And then throughout the rest of his life, his ministry there, it's not like it was explosive and, and um, you know, it's not like the converts just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, not during his life. But today, there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of believers in that part of the world. And the reason they have the gospel is because William Carey went there. It's because he, so the, the way that the gospel grows is like that mustard seed that, that goes into the ground and it's the smallest of all the seeds. And, and like Gabe was saying in Sunday school, the fruit, it doesn't always just spring up all of a sudden. But you give it time, you give it time, and there are, there are massive numbers of Christians. I suspect more Christians in that part of the world in India than William Carey ever dared to dream. That's the way the gospel works. And that's sort of the way that Isaac's life is. And that brings us to his his difficulty here in this sister fib. Now, maybe if you have, if you were here last week, or maybe you picked one of these up this week, this, this uh, sort of chiastic structure thing that I handed out, um, I, I would invite you to look at this. And you can see in the passage that we're in that I, 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 su- I suggested that what we've got here in 2520 through 265, Rebecca's children struggle in the womb and God's promise to Isaac, reaches back to 21 and 22. And I think the way that 26, 1 through 5 quotes the end of 22 really bears this out. And then also, that's why they're both in green. And then also what follows here in 26, 6 through 35 matches both chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, the sister fib, and 12, 10 through 20, the first time Abraham did this sister fib. It also matches, 26, 6 through 35, also matches chapter 34, where the sons of Jacob... Uh, they deceive the Hivites, and I didn't really include the detail there, but the way in which they deceive the Hittites is in response to the fact that, the, that uh, Shechem has assaulted Dinah, one of Jacob's daughters. And I think that episode actually probably sheds light on these sister fibs, because what happens over there in Genesis 34 is this guy Shechem, he seizes one of Jacob's daughters, and he rapes her. And then he comes... And he doesn't offer any word of apology. And he doesn't act like anything's wrong. But then he comes to negotiate a marriage with with Jacob and Jacob's sons. And there's never any kind of statement like, well, it was wrong for me to take take her the way that I did, but now I would like... There's no acknowledgement of anything wrong. And, and, you know, in these Sister Fib episodes, um, these, these pagan kings, they say to the patriarchs, in fact, I think Abimelech's about to say it, Abimelech says... Um, yeah, down in verse 10, one of the people might easily have lain with your wife. Now, I think he's, I think he's operating on kind of, you know, pagan, Philistine, uh, Canaanite sexual practices where the kind of thing that Shechem does to Dinah was maybe sort of normal. 
And maybe what a guy does is he sees a woman he likes and he just seizes her and abuses her and then he worries about the marital details later. And, and perhaps, now I'm, I'm offering a, a perhaps here, perhaps the reason that the patriarchs did this sister fib thing is, is they thought to themselves, well, if the guy, if they, if they want to do this and they know that I'm the husband, they might just kill me and do that. But if they know that I'm the brother, then maybe they won't kill me. Maybe they'll come try to negotiate and I can say, no, 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 you, you can't marry my sister. So I don't know what's informing it, but I do know that the verse that Gabe referenced in Sunday school applies. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So what, what I'm suggesting is that, that maybe there's a rationale for why those guys did the sister fib. Maybe they're thinking, okay, rather than get murdered, I'd rather at least be in a position to negotiate. That doesn't make it okay. They're fearing man rather than trusting in the Lord. And, and what I'm suggesting to you is that Isaac should not follow in the footsteps of Abraham and, and deceive and, and pass Rebekah off as his sister. So look with me at verses 6 through 11 here. Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah. So again, I think that you're, their society is not like our society. I mean, that, uh, what we see with, with Jacob's sons over in chapter 34 and the way that they respond to... I mean, it's bad stuff that happens, but it's almost as though Jacob's sons have become Canaanized in the way that they, they visit a bloodthirsty vengeance upon those who perpetrated the evil act in Genesis 34. So the practices of Canaan are the practices of Canaan. It's, it's this kind of, of behavior that God is going to judge when he brings Israel out of Egypt and, and the Israelites put the Canaanites under the ban. In other words, Isaac is in real danger. He very well could be killed, just as Abraham was in real danger back in chapter 12 and again in chapter 20. And then we're, we're told at the end of verse 7, because she was attractive in appearance. And this is also what we read about Sarah in Genesis 12. It's also what we'll read about Rachel over in uh, chapter 28. And then in verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. And, and you, you've got a footnote in the ESV. And uh, dis, Well, you can look at that footnote, whatever. Um, I started to tell you to disregard it, but you can look at it. What I, I thought it was going to say something about the word laughing. That's, in my opinion, they, that's what they ought to put. Because the word laughing here is, is really a form of Isaac's name. And, and the way that, you know, I, I told you when... when um, when the Lord announced to Isaac or announced to Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a child, and they laughed, and the Lord says, "Okay, you're going to name him. He laughs, uh, but since you've responded this way." And and so Isaac's name, you could render that he laughs, and then this is he laughs is laughing, and it's a participle, and then the the object receiving the action of the laughing is Rebecca, and so um, um, one of the reasons that people uh, take this as an indication that 
like what's said in that footnote might be going on, is because later in Exodus 32 through 34, when they sin with the golden calf, it says that they, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up, and then they've got this same form of Isaac names, Isaac's name. They rose up to laugh. Um, and I think there's a suggestion here that, that Isaac is acting with Rebekah in a way that you don't act with your sister. And Abimelech sees this, and he knows that's not his sister. And, um, and so, verse 9, Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, and we've seen this question before. This is what Pharaoh asked Abraham in 1218. This is what Abimelech asked Abraham in 20 verse 9. What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And, and the, the prohibition, the warning there, it really kind of sounds like the, uh, the, the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil, doesn't it? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It's worded really similarly. And I've got another uh, little... Uh, Structure for you on the, if you put that one up on the screen, the next one there, there we go. Yeah, so this passage too is, is structured so that life in Gerar in verse 6 is answered in verse 11 with, while they're in Gerar, don't touch them, touch not Isaac or Rebekah. And then in, in the first part of verse 7, the men ask about his wife, and in, in, that's answered by the question in verse 10, what is this you have done? And then on either side of the central thing is Isaac's, or Isaac's words, she's my sister. And then you have Isaac-ing, Isaac Isaacing Rebecca in, in the middle of this whole passage in verse 8. So what, what is there for us in Genesis 26, verses 6 through 11? Let me, let me suggest some applications for you from this passage. Number one, God doesn't need deception to establish his truth. God doesn't need the lies of man to advance the truth of God. And and that's related to number two. God is able to protect his people. And, and you know, if, if Isaac had reflected on Abraham, he could have reflected on the way that God visited plagues on Pharaoh in Genesis 12. And God made all the Philistine women in Genesis 20 barren until Abimelech restored Sarah to Abraham. The plagues liberate Sarah in Genesis 12. The barrenness and and the the, the wrath of God on the Philistines liberates Sarah. So Isaac could have thought, Proverbs 29, 25, those who trust the Lord are safe. The fear of man is a snare, but those who trust the Lord is safe. Those who trust the Lord are safe. I'm going to trust the Lord. He can deliver me. If they come after me, God will visit, God will do something. I don't know what he'll do, but he'll protect me. God doesn't need our lives, our lies, not our lives. He wants our lives. God doesn't need our lies. He's able to protect his people. Number three, God is going to accomplish his purpose. And and this is comforting for us because even though Isaac blows it here, even though Abraham blew it, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 and Genesis 16, again and again, Abraham, God still accomplishes his purpose. And God is accomplishing his purpose, purposes here with Isaac. He's going he's to protect Rebekah 
and keep them together for the seed of promise to come. God will accomplish his purpose. We will regret our sin and our cowardice. I mean, if you were Isaac, would you want the Bible to tell this kind of story about you? I mean, this is really uh, unfortunate for him, I think, that for thousands of years, people re read of the way that he lied and the way that he, he was rebuked by a pagan for doing so. We will regret our sin and cowardice, and then last here, sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. In other words, what's going to happen to Isaac in the next chapter, I think is related to this. Isaac is deceived by Rebekah and Jacob in a way that destroys the unity of their family. It, it results in it results in Jacob having to, to leave and be gone for 20 years. It results in a rupture between Jacob and Esau that has Esau ready to murder Jacob. And, you know, we read about the death of Sarah. We never read about the death of Rebekah in the book of Genesis. And I think that that's perhaps because of the way, the role that she played in the deception of her husband, in the stealing of the blessing for Jacob. We never read of her death. We never read of what they're... What, I, I mean, a, a, a deception of that magnitude for Rebekah to send Jacob in to steal the blessing. I, I mean, I, you know, we, their marriage survived, but how does a relationship recover from that kind of betrayal? Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. The, the, the example that Isaac followed from Abraham here sowed the seeds for the, the way that he himself in turn was deceived. And that brings us to the last part of this chapter in verses 12 through 33, which is, which is a lot about the blessing of God through particularly water. And, and as we read this passage, we have to remember that in that world, if you don't have water, you don't live. And, you know, they don't have a sink with a, with a faucet that they, they can just go turn on. They, if, they, if they're going to get water, they're going to have to somehow access that. It doesn't rain all the time. They're going to have to dig a well. They're going to have to somehow find water. And so it's necessary for life, for themselves and for their flocks and herds. So this passage uh, is also going to be, uh, yeah, they, they went ahead and put my next little chiastic structure here. Um, actually, what I want to do, you can see how I'm, I'm arguing this passage is structured. I want to start in the very middle of this whole thing at verse 24, because I think that's, what, that's what's really uh, most significant here, as revealed by the, the literary structure of the text. I think that Moses has centered verse 24 in the arrangement of the text. So look with me at what we find there. Genesis 26, 24, the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. And, and we're going to see in just a moment why it is that he would fear. The Philistines have stopped up the wells that Abraham dug. And then every time Isaac's servants find water, the Philistines come along and they say, that's not your water, that's our water. And they're like, well, Wait a minute, we dug the well. 
And they're like, yeah, but we're the Philistines. We're the people of the land. This is not your land. How many people you got to defend this well? That's our well. And so, so they keep having these contentions between themselves and the Philistines. And we've already seen the way that Isaac is afraid that somebody's going to kill him and take his wife. And here's the, Lord, here's the blessing. Here's the Lord saying in verse 24, fear not. Do you remember where we saw this before in Genesis? Genesis 15.1, after Abraham puts those kings to flight in Genesis 14. And, and he says, do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield. Fear not, verse 24, I am with you and will bless you and will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And, and it's a lot like verse 5 there, because Abraham obeyed my voice, because of Abraham. And then look at, let's look at first what comes before verse 24. What comes before verse 24 is the way that God provides, and there's actually not contention. So look at verses 22 and 23. He's, we're we're going to see in just a second all this contention in verses 17 through 21. And then verse 22, Isaac moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So finally he finds a place where he can get water, and the Philistines aren't taking the well once he gets it dug. They did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, which is, it means, it's a word that means like broad land. So there's space here for him, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. What we see here in verses 22 and 23, we see Isaac trusting the Lord for provision, recognizing God's provision. And look at verse, look at verse 25. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. And pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So what he does is he recognizes the Lord is provided, so he's thanking God, and then he worships. All right? And, and so this is, that's what's at the center of this passage. Prior to the Lord providing room in verse 22, we see contention in verses 17 through 21. I'm just going to read through this quickly. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. Why would they do that? That's, you're just destroying something useful. I mean, there's water there, everybody needs water, and they come along and fill them in. That's just totally unproductive and, and just wicked. Anyway, middle of verse 18, and he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, and that word means contention, you know. And, and, then, and then it goes on, verse 21, Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. That's a word that means accusation. It's actually a word that's related to Satan. Uh, the, these people are constantly bringing these accusations about how we got access to this water and who it belongs to. And then the Lord provides space and he worships the Lord in response. Well, all that contention in verses 17 through 21 is matched by the making of a covenant in verses uh, 26 through 30. So if you look down at verse 26, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzoth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? I mean, here comes the, the king and the, chief, the, the commander of the army and this other advisor. He doesn't know why they're coming. They could be coming 
to, to initiate conflict, you know, to say, we're going to attack you tomorrow unless you flee the land. Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? Verse 28, they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Which, incidentally, this is exactly the way that uh, people talked to Abraham back in chapter 21. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Which, again, is what happens between Abraham and the Philistines back in in chapter 21, verse 27, verse 29, that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you. Uh, remember verse, uh, verse 11, touch not Isaac, do not touch Isaac and Rebekah. Now they're saying we haven't touched you and have done nothing but good to you and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Th- these Philistines recognize that God has blessed Isaac. Verse 30, so he made them a feast and they ate and drank. They make a covenant together. In the morning they rose early, verse 31, and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. So the contention in verses 17 through 21 is matched by the making of the covenant in verses 26 through 30. And look at the blessing of God on Isaac in verses 12 through 16. Verse 12. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier. Than we are. So the Lord blesses Isaac, and the Philistines, Abimelech, sends Isaac away. Look down at verses 31 through 33. In the morning, this is after they make the covenant, they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba. To this day, so you can see how I think I think you can see how the passage is presenting these matching sections. What's the point of all this? How does this apply to us? Well, I would propose to you that from verse twenty-four, the center of the passage, this verse says it, 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 it says the Lord appeared to Isaac that same night and said, "I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not." For I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Here's how I would translate that into our time in the new covenant. In the world you will have trouble, but fear not. I have overcome the world. That's essentially what the Lord is saying to Isaac. You're having trouble with these Philistines? Fear not. I'm with you. I'm going to accomplish my purposes. And the Lord Jesus says... To his disciples in John 14 and 15, he says, you know, in the world you'll have trouble, but fear not, I've overcome the world. And then he talks to them in chapter 15 how if they abide in his words, and his words abide in them, they will bear fruit. And and I would say to you in the words of Psalm 1, if you will meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, that psalm will be true of you. And you will bear fruit in season, and your leaf will not wither. And everything that you do, you'll prosper. Now, you know, not in the health, wealth, prosperity way, 
But in the, the ongoing experience of the presence of God and the blessing of God on your life kind of way. And then from these, these, uh, this recognition of, that we see from Isaac in verses 22 and 23, and then his response of worship in verse 25, I would, I would urge you that as you pray for things, and as you walk in obedience to the Lord, and as you see him provide and, and meet needs and bless you, thank him, praise him. Respond in worship. From the, the contention with the Philistines in verses 17 through 21, and then the covenant that Isaac makes with them in verses 26 through 30, I would say we can see here as Isaac's servants keep finding these wells, God is providing for Isaac even as the nations are raging against him. And, and this, is what we, this is what we should expect. In the world you will have trouble. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, seed of the serpent, and her seed, seed of the woman. There's going to be enmity between us and the world. Watch the Lord provide. Watch the Lord meet us. He will. He's faithful. He'll do it. And then with the covenant that Isaac makes, we should hear Paul's words. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Do what you can to, to live at peace with them. And then lastly, verses 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Be'eri. It's interesting, all through this passage, the word for, the word for well in Hebrew is, it, I mean, it's spelled like our word beer. <laughs> so there's a lot of beer in this passage, meaning there's a, there are a lot of wells of water in this passage. And now we've got this guy whose name is like well. Uh, Judith, the daughter of well, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. You know, back in chapter 21, that's where Abraham had all this conflict with the Philistines over a well of water, Genesis 21, 25. Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water. That chapter also includes 21, 21 about Ishmael, he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So I think what Moses has done is he's paralleled um, Ishmael marrying an Egyptian, now with Esau marrying these Canaanites. And, and all through Genesis, there's a concern for the people of Abraham not to intermarry with the peoples of the land, not to intermarry with the Canaanites like Esau does, like Ishmael does, but instead to marry within Abraham's family. Well, what's, what's that about? It's about the preservation of the line of descent. It's about the seed of promise. And what Esau does here by intermarrying with the Canaanites is just like his despising of his birthright at the end of chapter 25. So in response to this, I would plead with you, don't despise the gospel. Don't, don't despise God's promises as Esau did. Don't forsake God's promises. Esau sold his birthright for food, and then he forsook his family for these women. And, and by the way, the, the uh, polygamists that we've seen prior to this, it hasn't gone well for them. You know, The first polygamist in Genesis is this guy Lamech back in chapter 4. 
And he's, he's not somebody that you want to imitate. And that's the path that Esau pursues here. So think about those two things. Food and then sex. Esau's really driven by his appetites. It's, it's for food that he sells his birthright. And then it's for these women that he forsakes his family. Those things are not worth going to hell for. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, what we're saying to you is that the blessing of God can be yours. But you've got to turn away from your flesh and your appetites. You've got to turn away from your God being your belly. And, and you've got to renounce all the things that God has forbidden. And God has said, those are sinful things. You've got to turn away from all that. And then you've got to put your hope in the promise of Abraham. And, and you've got to look to the one through whom God has brought to pass the blessing of Abraham. That's the Lord Jesus. And if you'll embrace him as your Savior and your Lord, you will experience the blessing of God on your life. You will experience life. Don't intermarry with the Canaanites. Just as a side sort of application here, uh, Paul forbids believers marrying unbelievers. It's not worth it. It's not going to go well. And you're implicitly saying that something matters to you more than the gospel matters to you. We can't go that way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the way that this passage tells us that those who receive the blessing of Abraham will be protected against all their enemies, will be prospered by you in spite of the raging nations, in spite of the enmity of the seed of the serpent. Lord, we thank you for these things, and we pray that you would help us to believe. Help us to believe the gospel. Help us to believe that that when the Lord Jesus said that anyone who leaves houses or fathers or sisters or brothers or houses or lands for his sake and for the gospel will receive in this life and in the age to come so much more besides, Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe that we will find life, not, not the, van the vanity,